Side with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from a bedroom in the suburbs of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? How's this international week treating you, Andrew? Fine. Fine. I wish that, uh, obviously, the U.S. had a little more involvement in uh, in these international weeks. But nevertheless, yeah. I mean, look, we, it's not the Premier League. It's not, like, the thing that I get most excited about. International friendlies, Nations League. You know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. The never-ending Nations League. Yeah, so w- this, um, I don't know. We'll get it's a, into it's a it lot. later. It's a lot. It's a lot. But all I know is that you can be in your Nations League group and finish top of that group and still play another game against a team you may have beaten twice and you still don't go to Euro 2020. I don't understand everything that's going on here, but I do understand that this is going to be a very fun show. We, JJ, as we sometimes tend to do in these international breaks, we have dusted off the wheel. I should warn you, the the main wheel is obviously still in caught offside towers in, in isolation, in quarantine. And um, I've tried to craft my own wheel here. It's a little bit more kind of shambles, but it'll do. It'll do. And we've got a lot you of great are, topics. You are not. Oh, we've got amazing topics. I can't wait to get in, into them, including our almost X-rated U.S. men's national team, European-based 11. Well, first of all, I mean, if, if I might say... Just because that's on the wheel, you don't know what's going to come up on the wheel. All right, you're teasing topics for the people that you don't even do. You even know how the wheel works. We're trying. Is this irresponsible? JJ, this is this is a, a bit that we do where we pretend to spin a wheel and we have topics on it that the people are supposed to not believe we're pre-selected. I've I've lifted the curtain. All is revealed, and now it's over. You don't know how to be a professional. Let me I do teach not. you. Let me take you under my wing and and mentor you. So we'll have that with who knows what sort of fun could ensue in the wheel of football with a lot of topics, some of which we may not even get to that we were hoping to get to. We also have Jeff Carlisle on the show uh, because a lot has happened in MLS. Um, Some very interesting results over the weekend that we wanted to uh, do a bit more of a deep dive on LAFC with a huge win for them, uh, but not without a couple interesting losses for them on the injury front. So we'll talk to Jeff about, um, about all that stuff in MLS and JJ back by, um, what I can only believe was backed by popular demand because you had texted me the other day and said, people are asking about red card, a man of the match and want to know what, what happened to these longtime staples, like six years uh, of, of being a staple within the show. People were wondering, I guess my only answer could be that we got lazy. I, I, I think I, 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 that is the real answer. That's exactly what happened. But I like to couch it in lies and say that we prefer to give the people a voice during these tough, tough times. But actually, we just didn't bother. What is that even? What kind of explanation is that? Well, we let the mailbag go longer. Oh, oh, that is a an unbelievable lie. I can't believe you could tell it with a straight face. You actually can't. You're laughing right now. Um, but yeah, red card man of the match because we listen to the people. We care about what you all think. And people have said they want it back. So we're bringing it back. So we'll have that later in the show as well. By the way, we will be talking Ted Lasso later in the show too. There's no point saying that we won't. It can't be avoided. It's It's the feel-good story that's sweeping our nation. I'm so curious. I know how you feel about it because you don't want to feel good about anything. No, um, I, I right. no, no, not even do it now. We'll do it later. No, no, no. But if you do start the conversation by saying, I don't, you, you, you that you went into this going to hate it. If, if you started like that, then we can't have a conversation because well, that you, that's predeterminism. 
but but it's the truth though you you went into it not wanting to like it i'm sure that will bear itself out in how you feel about it i went in with my eyes open not covered in a thick lacquer of schmaltz well there you have it people jj has already <laughs> delivered his uh flower let's, let's wait let's wait there's right, lots here's I'm, I'm rolling in the wheel now it's it's uh it's not pretty as you can see here um, I don't even have the the usual open. I can't wait, JJ, for us oh. to get back to the studio where we can where I have all my drops in front of me. We can play the da, 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 wheel of football. So there okay. you have it, everybody. So one quick one quick question: What yeah. about the the girl that we we used to pay to spin the wheel? She is with the wheel in quarantine. Oh, that's rough. We have we have got to start paying her more. All right, here we go. You're gonna. You see the wheel here. You can see it's not in great shape. Here is the first spin, JJ. That is a sad wheel, but it landed on a topic that I'm actually very happy because I've wanted to talk about this ever since we saw it kind of delivered in the last 36 hours or so, and that is Project Big Picture. Wow. All right. So uh, the only way to start with this is to kind of go through the bullet points of what it actually is. So we're all on the same page here of what this means. Is it, Are you is doing it, that or am I? Do you have them in front of you? I mean, I, I have them here. Okay, go ahead then. Okay, so this was uh, revealed to the Telegraph at the weekend. And uh, in short, it was drawn up by Liverpool's owners and backed by Manchester United in concert with the EFL head, uh, Rick Parry. Um, the Premier League will be reduced from 18 to 20 clubs. Two Premier League sides automatically relegated each season and replaced by top two championships, championship sides. The 16th place Premier League club enters a playoff with third, fourth and fifth place championship clubs. The EFL Cup and Community Shield are abolished. I feel like I've buried the lead here, but here's the next point. Special status for nine longest serving Premier League clubs, Big Six plus Everton, West Ham and Southampton. <laughs> Sorry. 250 million immediate compensation to the EFL, 8.5% of annual Premier League revenues would to go on operating costs, 25% of the remaining revenue would go to the EFL. Parachute payments scrapped, 100 million immediate payment to the Football Association to cover lost revenue and to develop non-league non-league women's and grassroots football. This is all right, so and I like how you said that you buried the lead. I think it was almost delivered in that way. Like this was like the fine print that, you know, that they were hoping you, no one would read and you would stop after the 250 million uh, payment. Right. That, that charitable act of, of, of giving of kindness. Right. So, okay, let's, I think it's easier to start with the easy stuff from this. Do the easy stuff. Yeah. Um, in terms of the going from 20 EPL sides to 18, I don't love that. I feel like it's maybe messing a little bit with with something that isn't necessarily broken right now. Um, but so be it. Maybe it increases the the quality within the league. Um, and if that's the byproduct of it, I mean, look, it's fine for the Bundesliga. Um, so uh, ultimately, it's not something that I would necessarily lose sleep over. Um, I'm it's, sure it's, are, it, I think it's minor in, in the scale of things here. Yeah. Uh, the League Cup and Community Shield. I don't really understand why the Community Shield needs to go. It's just a one-off. Um, like Preseason games are going to get played anyway. I don't understand why that one needs to go, but whatever. I'm not going to lose sleep over that. I think, I, think that, I think that was to almost, you know, just to say 
the obvious target has been the Carabao Cup, the League Cup for opprobrium from the top six sides. They treat it with contempt. So it's almost like they need something else along with it to, to think, to, to show that they've been, it's not just this thing they're fixated upon, you know? I, I, that's the only reason because it's a one-off game. Um, for me, the League Cup, that going away, I have a, a little bit of mixed feelings on. As a fan of a Premier League team, I won't miss it. And I think that it could add value back to the FA Cup, which is something that EPL fans have kind of like that. That's been something that's waned for a lot of people, mm-hmm. the FA Cup. I think if you make that the solitary tournament, um, then I think that will add some prestige back to that, which I'm all for. Uh, the League Cup, I would think some lower league size would miss that very much. Um, so I could see it from their perspective. However, there are other elements of this plan where I think they'd be willing to part with that in order to gain some of the the other elements of this. Um, should we go right into those things now? The financials? Do, do uh, that. So these are the things that make this confusing for me um, because there are people instinctively have wanted to come out and bash this because of, like I said, the fine print. However, there are parts of this that are certainly positive. The you know EFL clubs being given two hundred and fifty million a rescue fund to help replace lost gate percentages uh, from during the pandemic. Like there are reports coming out now, JJ, that within the next five to six months, many many EFL clubs will disappear, will cease to exist. Right. Uh, so this is essentially it's an urgent act of. Uh, for lack of a better term, we'll say what you said before: an urgent act of kindness. It's, from- it's not. It- it's a bailout. It's a bailout that's not going to come from anyone from anyone else because the government seems to be not moving on this. They say it's football's problem. They've put it onto the Premier League to do this. Yeah, um, but it's this is the element of it that is vital and that these EFL clubs they, they're in desperate need of. And you know, so we can't minimize the importance of that. Uh, however, when you get to the next part, the redistribution of voting within the Premier League. Yeah. This is where you start to feel like, like, okay, you have these clubs that are, for lack of a better term, they are they're dying of thirst. They are in desperate need of water. And here come the rich and wealthy with their, you know, bottles upon bottles upon bottles of water. And they could just give them to you, but instead they want to capitalize on the direness of your situation. Yes. And that <laughs> And therein lies, I guess, why I ultimately cannot feel comfortable with this, because there's just something underhanded uh, and dirty to me about doing that. Now, people will say, well, look, professional soccer is not a charity, and there's no reason for it to be conducted that way, that this is a business. Um, but okay, I understand that point. That is a, that's a fine point. However, me speaking as a fan, do you trust the redistribution of votes, which essentially they say it's nine, but only six of the nine need to vote in favor of something Correct. to pass. So really we're talking about six clubs that are going to now be making the decisions for all of soccer in the Premier League. Do you trust those six clubs as a fan to consistently do what is in the best interest of this league's growth? No. Of course I, I, not. Of course I don't. I don't trust the Glazers to do what's in the best interest of the club they already own, to paraphrase Henry Winter. This is... This is the weakened EFL. This is basically something. Let, let, let's look at the history, Andrew, because the top six have been aggrieved for many years because they feel they contribute the most to the league in terms of interest and excitement, supporters, revenue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they've looked consistently to get more out of this. Look at the TV deal they, they renegotiated a couple of years ago. 
to make sure that the top six got extra from the international TV rights. This is opportunism. This is a it's it's a push against the way English football has been run for a long, long time. It is taking advantage of a situation. It is dangling a carrot, not in front of a donkey, but of a donkey that is dying right. and saying, here's your carrot, but also I need to ride you. You know, like this is this is a bad, bad thing for football. I, I cannot sit here and listen to these top six clubs talk to me with a straight face about how they need more. All right. And, and I'll say that as a Tottenham fan. Who, I mean, look at the palace they just built. You know, like th- their brand new stadium and their deal with the NFL. I mean, give me a break. They don't need more money. Manchester United by Forbes were just ma- named, I think, the second richest club in the world. Uh, in terms of what their value is. Manchester City, do we even need to talk about the value of Manchester City? I mean, this is utter silliness for these six clubs to try and cry poverty right now. I shouldn't say that. They're not crying poverty, but they are demanding a a larger cut of the pie because of what they feel they put in. But they're all doing fine. And by the way, that is a gross understatement to say they're doing fine. They are raking in money. Yes. They're hurting now. I understand that. But this is temporary. Can't can't we see that? Like ultimately I saw ESPN, I think Gab Marcotti was had a, a, an article out uh, on ESPN FC talking about asking the question is the Premier League recession proof? And based on transfer activity from some of these clubs, you know, you you might be able to say these they're looking at a bigger picture and they know they're going to be fine. The popularity of this league is not going to disappear. A vaccine is going to be presented at some point. And this league, it may take longer than they were hoping, but they're going to start raking in money hand over fist again. But isn't this ultimately, Andrew, a a move? You see, ownership in the English Premier League has always been a... I mean, look, there has been financial doping. We know for a fact that the clubs like Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool, Chelsea, who came in later, and then latterly City have wielded power over the rest. We understand that. They are powerful anyway. But this is them deciding the future of the game in England, of the professional game in England, for everybody else now. The other side is, I think this is a move towards... It won't stop here. This is a move towards the European Super League. Getting rid of the Carabao Cup means a much more open calendar for them to do what they really want to do, which is to revamp European soccer, to make the Champions League a closed house We've heard before top people in European in the European club. Uh, what, what what's that? What's that cabal? Or cabal is not the right word. I don't, um, grouping of the top European club owners with Agnelli and all these guys who say they well we don't want another Leicester City. You know when they have their meetings, they ultimately want to ring fence European soccer and have the Champions League as pretty much a shut shop because they they will get the most revenues they'll get all the tv money out of it and they think which is i think is the major miscalculation they think that people will keep watching if it's real madrid versus liverpool three times in a year which they won't i get, this is this is we've heard for years about the nfl you know eating the golden goose i mean this is this is what soccer is heading towards as well um oliver holt had a tweet and he's vehemently against this, as are quite a few journalists in the English game. He said, in the end, maybe it comes down to this. Do we really believe that the billionaire owners of the big six care about the long-term health of clubs in League One and League Two? Or do we think Project Big Picture is a giant Trojan horse, not the end of the slaughter, but the start of it? And it's hard not to feel that way. Um, another example, Andrew, as well, of, of the, just of the thinking of clubs at the moment. 
And this was Fern Soriano, the Manchester City CEO. Um, he had to say this last week. There are other problems. The challenges of developing players in England where B teams are not allowed. Soriano continued. We have a development gap of boys that are 17 or 18. They don't find the right place to develop. And for example, they are taken from us by the German teams who try to sell them back to us for a price which is 10 times what they paid. I wonder who he could be talking about there. Perhaps Sir Jaden of Sancho. Uh, yeah. But by the way, Ferran, it's not, as, as Daniel Story pointed out in his piece on iNews, it's not anybody's fault that you have loaded your academies with top players and can't find space for them to play. The lower leagues are not your farm system. Ferran Sariano's dream is that like Rotherham in the championship would be a farm team for Manchester City. And look, as much as I love minor league baseball, that is not a future I want. I do not want that kind of American model shipped to England. These clubs are entities on their own. They're centers of the community. They can't be a franchise. That's not right. No. No, I totally agree. I was just curious. What do you think that like when this plan was delivered and Premier League clubs got their first look at it, what do you think the people at like Aston Villa and Newcastle were thinking as they were seeing themselves like completely shut out while New while Southampton and West Ham are allowed into this group? Aston Villa put their hand up and said, excuse me, I know we've been relegated a few times. We won the European Cup in 1982. We were in the Premier League for most of its. We were in the Premier League for the entirety of its history up until a few years ago. Yeah. What are you like? And and that's that is. But doesn't it go, just go to show you how like just arbitrary this is? It's really the big six clubs, and like they need three others to make it seem like some kind of in any way egalitarian. Right. They had barely just enough wherewithal to be like you know optics matter here. We better do something. Right. Um, there's a there's there's always a Simpsons uh, moment for everything in the world. Uh, you remember when Mr. Burns was fined three million dollars for the improper uh, storage of uh, nuclear waste? He was stuffing it in trees in the park, and <laughs> he, he had to give three million dollars over, right? And then he 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 decided he would capitalize on the moment of weakness where they're having a town meeting trying to decide how that money should be allocated, and Burns shows up and. Um, this is how I rem- imagine uh, John Henry at the at the EFL meeting. Hello, my name is Mr. Snrub, and I come from uh, someplace far away. Yes, that will do. Anyway, I I say we invest that money back in the nuclear plant. I like the way Snrub thinks. <laughs> That's just like he turns up in a mustache, right? Uh, I mean, Liverpool's motto is "This means more." And really, you can just add money to the end of that. Biting. Biting commentary. Drops Mike. So we don't like it then? No, no. I don't. But we do believe. But again, I feel bad saying that because there are clubs that will go away if this doesn't happen. But but here, can I I make a, a moral argument? And it's an argument that Miguel Delaney has made. And I kind of agree with it. The moral argument is, Andrew, that the whole success of the Premier League has been built on the English pyramid. There is a, there is a, how would I put it, a, a moral obligation for the Premier League while it eats the fatted calf to share some of the stakes down the pyramid. Like, you know, that's what, that's what financial, or that's what parachute payments kind of are anyway. Like, shouldn't the Premier League be bailing out the EFL, EFL anyway? They have the money. Why does this have to be terms and conditions apply? Is this just the fact that, there's no way these businessmen, these billionaires can, can, can conceive of an idea that is wholly charitable without something coming back for them. Yeah. 
No. So it, good points. It's all, it'll, this will be interesting because my assumption is that this is going to happen. Um, but well, well, we'll the Premier League have rejected it. Um, the English government is uh, yeah, Boris Johnson. It. Boris Johnson was disappointed by, it, but they're not doing anything anyway. That's the British government thinking. Wait, no, hang on. Everything we like, the public don't like right now. So let's go against this. This should work, right? You know. It so that's a, a method. That's doing the political. That's political triangulation, as far as I can see. All right, ready for the next spin? Do it. Here we are. That is a sad wheel. And it lands, JJ, on International Review. All right. Okay. Let's uh, let's review some things. COVID, 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 COVID. Ireland penalties. France, Portugal. COVID, COVID. Ronaldo has tested positive. Hat-trick for Haaland. COVID, COVID. Whoa, whoa. Wait, what? Well, um, Ronaldo what? Ronaldo has tested positive for COVID-19. He is now going to isolate and um, he's removed from the Portuguese football camp. And that's been a story, Andrew, throughout this international break is been the, the COVID story right on the eve of, not on the eve, <laughs> a mere hours before Ireland were due to play Slovakia in their Euro 2020 playoff semi-final in Bratislava. There was an outbreak which robbed Ireland, not an outbreak, a positive test amongst a non-football member of the Irish soccer team. And because of the rules laid down by the health uh, service executive in Ireland, the two players, Adam Ida and Brighton's uh, Aaron Connolly, who would have certainly started for Ireland, meant that they were to be removed from camp and to go and isolate. So Ireland lose their players right on the eve of the game. Ireland have since lost players for their Nations League game at the weekend, the nil-nil draw with Wales. And reports are that ahead of their game against Finland tomorrow, they've lost more players or a player to a positive COVID-19 test. Um, we, we know the situation, Scotland uh, winning through against Israel to go into their uh, playoff final and uh, their team right before the game were, were decimated with COVID, uh, COVID-19 positive test. Uh, Stuart Armstrong, that meant that some Scottish players would miss out in that game. They they made it true. Ireland did not. And um, Connor Harrahan had a <laughs> shocking miss in that nil-nil draw. You said it's not the worst miss you've seen. It's so, one of the worst I've ever I, seen. I think it's a little bit disingenuous to call it a shocking miss because to me that implies that he he scuffs it wide. He, well, he missed over the, the goal. He, he puts it on target, but it's it gets blocked. I mean, it's point blank range and it's a gaping net. The goalkeeper is completely out of position and his shot is, is blocked by a defender. I think, it, I, I think it's a little bit harsh on him to say a shocking miss. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Literally, that's what happened. But we, I feel like I'm, I'm picturing like the Yakubu incident from the World Cup. And that's not what happened. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's, it's some, he's got to score, in my opinion. Um, All right. Uh, Alan Brown then hit the post later on and it goes to penalties, extra time and penalties and um, missed penalties from Alan Brown and a, a thunderbolt from Spurs, Matt Doherty off the crossbar and Ireland are not going to play Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland advancing after penalties themselves against Bosnia. So they'll be in their playoff final. Um, so that could have been an all Ireland affair, Andrew. Wow. Oh. At Windsor Park in Belfast, the Republic versus uh, Northern Ireland, but it's not to be. It'll be Slovakia versus Northern Ireland. And um, there we are. 
That's uh, tough. I'm sorry, man. That's I okay. texted you a message of support afterwards. I, I was tough for you. I'll tell you what else was tough, Andrew. The teak tough defending of a veteran. There's nothing like it. I thoroughly enjoyed Pepe's performance uh, for Portugal at the center of the defense against France. He's Andrew, what, 38 now? 37, I believe. Okay. Andrew, <laughs> it, it's amazing to me just the instincts of the defender because France were playing some lovely one-two combinations around the box. And just as it goes to the last pass, where Griezmann is going through, or Mbappe is going through. Who sticks out a leg? Who gets in a block? Pepe. Just, uh, again, I, I, I th- the first half wasn't great. The second half of that game, the nil-nil draw, was very, very interesting. And um, I, I think we saw a more, dare I say, expansive French team against Portugal, which is not really Deschamps' kind of, that's not his bag, man. And we saw a Portuguese team that is loaded with talent, but quite happy to sit back and try and do things on the counter, which frustrates the life out of me. If you've got all the talent that they had, at one point they had Jota, um, Bruno Fernandes, Ronaldo, Renato Sanchez on the field. You know, they had a lot going forward and a stout defense. And yet, mm, France kind of dominated proceedings, but a good game, an interesting game. And um, that's pretty much my international review for now. Oh, Haaland scored a hat-trick against Romania. So there we are. Uh, Let's see. Let's give a wheel another spin here. Oh, all right, JJ. Here we go. The uh, the wheel lands on U.S. men's national team European camp. Oh, Uh, I'm very excited about this. Oh, Andrew. there's, There's been some discussion uh, of a year of the European based American players um, having a, a camp based in Europe. So these players can uh, get the chance to play with one another, um, which has been like this crazy thing that has, you know, the, the pandemic and it's just like all these impediments have gotten in the way for the last several months of these guys being able to play with one another. Um, Stephen Goff, I saw tweeted uh, that Serginio Dest says that the U.S. will play <laughs> Wales and Australia in in London in November. Who is now so, the press officer as well as the right back. I'm sure the U.S. press officer and Greg Berhalter were thrilled that Serginio Dest made that statement. Um, until we see it in in like U.S. letterhead, I don't know what to think. But I'm going to assume that it's true, and I'm going to be happy about it because uh, this is great. I can't wait to see these guys finally back on the field with one another. Um, a couple things to address with this. First off, um, I think I, I want to give my team of what this would actually look like. Oh my God, Andrew! When I was going through this, it, it just it, it was it was a thrill to me to just have all these options. I, it it was it's fun. F- it, it's too much fun. It it it's. I mean, because it's all imaginary right now. Until I'm, but we have a chance. Well, it's really to, not. Well, well. First of all, what are the chances you think this is going to go ahead? If things keep deteriorating, they are the way they are in England. It may not go ahead. They may not even allow travel in from from Europe of this fashion. But it was just so. Uh, it was so much fun to do. The options, Andrew, are multivarious like they've never been before for the u.s men's national team so here's what i was looking at for uh formation please formation please i have three up front with no no uh, no. do it no do it from the back start with your keeper your defense your midfield your attack what do you do first of all i can do it however i want to do it all right if i want to start up front i'll start up front and 
yeah, now I'm going to go out of my way to do that because of the way you reprimanded me. So three up front, um, I'm going to put Josh Sargent in the middle. I'm going to put uh, Christian Pulisic on the left. On the right, For so they got two games here. Maybe for the first game, I'd like to see Tyler Boyd. And uh, for the second game, maybe let's get Tim Weah in there. By the way, Boyd's situation right now in the Turkish league is not is not awesome because no. so he's been playing and playing well, but uh, basically like restrictions over the number of foreign players on the squad could box him out of being able to participate until potentially January. Yeah. Um, and I saw Greg Berhalter is not happy about it, as you would expect. I'm sure Boyd is is irate in his own right. Uh, so that's that is frustrating and something to keep an eye on. Uh, but yeah, I think I'd go with them. Then in the middle. Um, I'd have Gio Reyna and uh, Weston McKinney in kind of like an advanced role. Uh, with so maybe- McKin- McKinney sits and Reyna's ahead of him. Well, no, I'll, I'll put like McKinney. Can I put McKinney and Reyna? Almost like a, a triangle in the midfield with McKinney and Reyna at like the front portion of it. And then like a, a kind of a one-man defensive midfield of Tyler Adams kind of in behind them a little. So you're but playing with freedom. Mc- you're playing McKinney advanced beyond Adams. Interesting. Yes. And then my defense, um, so at center back, I went with Chris Richards, and I went with John Brooks, but in the other Correct. game, I w- I'd like to get a look maybe at Matt Miazga as well. And then in net, one game, I'd like to see Zach Steffman, and then I think the other game, uh, let's give Ethan Horvath the sh- uh, shot to get in there. Mm-hmm. I, f- I, I like this team. This is this is fun. What about what, who's playing wide? Who's your fullbacks? Oh, yeah, I didn't say that. Uh, right back, I'll go with Serginio Dest. And left back, I want to see more of Anthony Robinson. And who would have thought, JJ, who would have thought that we'd be sitting here with him at 27 years old and we're having a hard time finding a place for DeAndre Yedlin on this team? Who would have ever thought that? I know, but look at the last few years, Andrew. Like, it's been injury. It's been, he's been dropped. I I mean, the worst thing that happened to him was Benitez leaving. Honestly. Like that was, that was when I was making, when I was going through this, that was the number one thing that stood out to me was just this idea of like, I want to shoehorn him in, but I just, I don't know if I can do it right now. I don't know that I can put him in it right back over Dest. I don't know, I know that I want to put him in a, in more of a midfield role. You, you see, you, you create, um, I've noticed this with you. You have emotional attachments to these players. And, I, I do. I, I love DeAndre Yedlin. Yeah. Really. And, and you look to pick based on sentiment sometimes. I think you need to be harder much tougher with yourself. Well, I think I just did. Where do right. you see him? He's not in here. Here's my team. I just picked one team. Um, pretty excited about it. Um, so I put Zach Steffen in goal as well. Although I am, it's funny. It's not funny actually, because he's not starting for anybody. So he's not, I'm not as over the top excited about Stefan in goal as everyone else is. And I don't think his kicking or his distribution is that good. Maybe it's going to improve at Man City. You would expect it would, but I'm not that hot on him, but I'm just going to go with it for now. Um, My center backs, I have Chris Richards at center back of Bayern Munich, and I have uh, Brooks and... We're the same so far. Yeah, we're the same so far. And I I went with Richards in there because he can play a right back, but obviously I'm going to play Dest there. And I... Brooks plays on the left, is left-sided. Richards is right-sided. I mean, at one point, I had Ream and Brooks together, which is two left-sided centre-backs. That would have been a disaster. And I have Anthony Robinson on the left-hand side as well. Mm-hmm. Here's where things get a bit different. I've gone 4-2-3-1. I have Weston McKinney and Alex Mendes, and I'm going to have Alex Mendes of um, Ajax pushing on a little bit. 
So he's just going to play a little bit advanced of McKenney because like McKenney is going to be screening that defense. He's also be getting on the ball, getting it to Mendes, getting it to Reina. But Mendes' ability to pick passes. I mean, I was watching some highlights of him playing for for Ajax Young and and for Freiburg before that. Andrew, he does this little reverse pass across his body. It just splits defenses. He can play passes between the lines. Love it. And then ahead of him in a three, I have Reina on the right, Pulisic central, and I have Conrad De La Fuente on the left. Um, now, I know that's a little bit tucked in. He's more of a winger, De La Fuente, from what I've heard. I actually haven't seen him play, so I'm guessing a little bit here, but he's at Barcelona, so he's sure as hell getting in my team. Um, but I think he can do that. So that's one, two, three there. And also, Reina and De La Fuente can swap sides. Pulisic can swap with Reina. There's a lot of movement there. And up front, as not a false number nine, but he's not an out-and-out striker, I have Josh Sargent, who I think can actually link the play together and get those guys running beyond him. So we do have, we do have some differences. I don't, did you not mention Tyler Adams? No, he's not on my side. Well, I would say that's uh, no, I decided not to try not to try and shoehorn him in like you did. I have no emotional. How how was he shoehorned? You don't think this guy should be starting for a European based American team? I ridiculous comment. I decided to be different. I scored a goal in the champions league. Oh, did he deflected? Um, No, he's very, He's very good. Stop. I just, I just, I was doing my research and I, I fell down a rabbit hole of Mendes videos and I, I really liked what I saw. Oh, but, but I'm the one that gets emotionally attached. You watch a YouTube video of a guy and now you're shoehorning him in. Um, by the um, way, so, somewhere, I actually, I shoehorning, shoehorning him right to the very top, my friend. So there we go. Uh, somewhere right now, Tim Ream is listening to this podcast going, what the hell guys? <laughs> No, he, he, I, I can't play him alongside Brooks, and I don't think I don't think he's better than Brooks anyway. Not right now. And I'm um, not saying Brooks is far from perfect, but there we are. That's my team. I saw this comment from Serginio Des that I wanted to read to you. Uh, this is from Yahoo Sports. I thought it was interesting. He's talking basically about all these young players for the U.S. that simultaneously are ascending to some of the biggest clubs in the world. You know, him at Barcelona with Conrad De La Fuente, Pulisic at Chelsea, Richards at Bayern Munich. I mean, there's something happening right now. McKinney at, at Juventus. Uh, Dest says everybody is hungry and everybody wants to achieve something with the U.S. I think that's a good sign because Sergio Dest can achieve great things, but not only personally, also as a team for the U.S. I think we are the guys that have to do it. If you're playing at a big club and you're going to be like, oh, okay, I already made it, then we can't achieve anything. So I hope that everybody keeps doing what they're doing and always wants to develop themselves even more than right now. A couple of things with that. What do we think about him referring to himself in the, uh, is that first person or third person? I that's third remember. person. Yeah. What what if I started doing that suddenly? I, I find, isn't that linked with a certain um, certain character traits? If you do that, there's always one person you've known in your life that's done. I've that. never known anyone personally who has done that. And if they did, I would immediately pull them aside and speak to them. It's weird, isn't it? Who does that? Who does that? It's it's a serious affectation. Um. But the other thing I've been wondering about, kind of hearing him say that, you know, those of us here at these big clubs, and I'm not putting words in in his mouth, but I feel like we've heard before about, is Rift the right word? Like the MLS-based players. I mean, it used to kind of be like the the German-American players that we would hear about kind of having their own clique and then... Like I, I wonder if that there's there's so many players right now at so many marquee clubs around Europe. Uh, I can't help but wonder if like once these guys are all mixed back together with MLS based players, if there will just be these these clicks and these rifts that have that will form within this team. 
Oh, I just Greg had. Bear, a, I think Greg Berhalter will have to. That will be something he will have to be like keenly aware of preventing. I just had a vision just popped into my head as you spoke. You paint such wonderful pictures, and it's the locker room before training camp, and you have Dest, Reina, and they're sat there talking to each other about Champions League football, and in wearing a ten-gallon hat. What is it? A ten-gallon hat, cowboy boots, and a plaid shirt from straight from Nashville with his guitar suitcase is Walker Zimmerman. He goes, hi y'all. And so just, you're doing it. You're, you're already working. You're part of the problem. Like people like you are what are going to tear this team apart. <laughs> I honestly don't think it'll be a problem. I, I would, I would hope not. No, I would hope not as well, but this should be fun. I, I do hope that this, obviously that this comes to fruition because, uh, we're ready. We're ready to see these guys play together. Uh, all right. Uh, we got to go quick here now. Another spin of the wheel. Here we go, JJ. Oh, this is uh, kind of an offshoot from the International Review, but it was a separate category unto itself. England beat Belgium. Belgium's first loss, JJ, since 2018. Um, this probably was not England's preferred 11, which is encouraging that they could do that. However, by the same token, Belgium were without Eden Hazard, Dries Mertens. You know, that that bears mentioning as well. Um, I guess ultimately the takeaway here is that England did not play very well. Uh, they were... I mean, they were kind of soundly beaten in the first half, it felt oh, like, yeah. on the balance of play. Um, and yet, what does that say about England, that they cannot play well and beat the number one ranked team in the world? Um, I don't know. Uh <laughs> The approach, though, to playing the number one ranked team in the world is what is what I'm curious about, Andrew. Like, can we say that this team has progressed under Southgate from what what were they in the World Cup two years ago? Hard to beat, organized, set pieces, not exactly very good on the ball, didn't keep the ball. And he's got these crop of young attacking players. And I know this is a game. There's lots of games coming right now. He wants to rotate the pack. But the team he picks to play against um, Belgium has a midfield of Alexander-Arnold, and Trippier on the other side, but Henderson and Rice in the center. And then you see Kyle Walker in a back three, and you're like, hmm, is this a manager? Like, would, would that surely not have been a time to give someone else, like, you know, Jack Grealish a start? I know. He when is he going to get his time? Like, it feels like I sometimes wonder what more does this guy have to do to prove his his worth? Well, he had a stellar, he had a stellar outing in the game they played before that. Um, again, I. I can't I can't remember who they played. There's so many international games right now, but he had a really good outing there. And you just wonder, I know the national newspapers got swept up in Grealish mania after the performance, but I, I just think he gives them something extra. And Southgate seems to have this streak of conservatism in him. And I wonder if it's time to let the young lads off the leash, so to speak, Andrew. And again, I don't think this team has developed massively since the last World Cup, but they definitely have more talent available. And I think the manager needs to start just basically picking that talent. I would have loved to have seen them go full team, their their for, first for 11 against Belgium. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kane uh, came off the bench in this one. Uh, Jaden Sancho, I think, came off in like the 89th, came yeah. on the, off the bench in like the 89th minute. Yeah. And I know um, Southgate's balancing concerns with 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 club and balance uh, you know he's balancing playing right. time he's doing all those things i do understand that but um maybe maybe now is not the time to do it but i i, I certainly think he should the problem is I, I still don't know how to approach these nations league games from a mental standpoint because you always tell me you know like you always say 
be careful what you take away from friendlies. Like yeah. You've always preached that to me when I would get carried away with the U.S. Oh, beating definitely. Italy or the Netherlands. You would say, just don't don't take too much away from this. And ultimately, I have come to be of that mindset. It's okay to get excited about good performances and friendlies, but but when you're talking about what they mean in terms of a World Cup, I don't really know what any of this means. However, the flip side of that is I don't know that the Nations League should be viewed the same way that friendlies are viewed. Like, do are are the are the teams taking this as seriously as they would take a major tournament? Now, the the team that Gareth Southgate put out there would tell you, no, they're not. Mm. So there's just kind of like this inherent confusion in how we're supposed to perceive the importance of these Nations League games. I don't know, right? And and all, but if you're a team that's going to qualify through the regular method, you know, does the Nations League really matter? I mean, England are going to qualify for most tournaments if 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 the Nations League continues. They're going to qualify through regular qualifying. Uh-huh. So does does any of this even matter? You know, uh, whereas it's different for Scotland or Republic of Ireland. I mean, the Nations League is a genuine kind of opportunity to give yourself a shout if you don't get through your group. Uh, but then again, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that this new system is better than it was. It's trying to give. We had meaningless friendlies. Was that that phrase? It's trying to give meaning to something that ultimately doesn't have meaning. Um, and it's not really working because, like I said, Bosnia Herzegovina uh, topped their group in the Nations League, beat Northern Ireland, and then they play Northern Ireland and they lose out. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, surely if they top, the best thing if they could top their group is that there's some way that they can automatically go into like a playoff final rather than playing another game to lose out. It's like that. It's like in the episode of, of of the British Office, where they lose the quiz. David Brent and Finchie lose the quiz, and then they decide to do a double or quits afterwards with the team that won, by saying, "Oh, if I can throw your shoes over the pub, then we win," and that's the real quiz. Right. I don't. Yeah. Uh, let's see one more spin here, JJ. Here we go. Ooh, you'll like this one. The Merseyside Derby. That's right. Saturday, 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Liverpool, Everton from Goodison Park. Uh, Liverpool come in, JJ, part of a a four-way tie for second right now on points while Everton sit atop the league. Four wins from four matches. Um, A little bit of positive news for Liverpool as both Thiago and Sadio Mane have recovered from the coronavirus and will be available to play. However, another name that we did not mention before when we were talking about players that have gone away on international duty and tested positive, Naby Keita is among them. So he will most likely not be able to play in this match. Um, Here's the question that's kind of been bouncing around in my head for this. Which team do we stand to learn more about from this game? It's such a good question. Such a good question. Because on the Liverpool hand, we can potentially learn whether against a against a team in form, whether last week's or two weeks ago uh, was an aberration in the 7-2 against Aston Villa. But with Everton, we can say, well, who have Everton really played so far? Okay, they played Tottenham, fair uh, fair enough. But, you know, they had um, Brighton. What have we learned? And now they're coming up against the champions. We can learn a lot about Everton. I think I think it works both ways, really. Yeah, I, what- tend, I, I tend to lean Everton. Uh, I see what you said. Like you're right. There is something to be learned about Liverpool too. But I just sort of feel that it's that it's Everton and well, Liverpool are the champions. So that 
And just like even beyond that, don't you feel like Liverpool, as they have had many over many teams in this league, don't you feel like they've just had this kind of mental grip over Everton? Everton every time these teams play each other, it just feels like Liverpool have some sort of like mental edge that yeah. you know, whether that's real or, or perceived. I don't Although know. not at Goodison, not at Goodison. It's true, at they well, they drew nil nil. Yeah, uh, last season during the summer. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm just like, I'm curious about, you know, this is a different Everton. You know, Hamas Rodriguez was not on these other Everton teams. And like the leap forward that Dominic Calvert-Lewin has taken, I'm now curious to see him do that against the likes of, of a Van Dyke and that Liverpool defense. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about how Everton, like, will they, will they just sit back and just like almost submit? And try to get one on the counter, or are they going to just go right at Liverpool as they have had, as they've done with with every team so far this season? Let me give you an example of New Everton, Andrew. New Everton is Michael Keane stepping forward and clipping balls over the top for players, like stepping into midfield. That's Ancelotti. This is not the Michael Keane that we saw for the past two seasons at Everton. So, what I'm challenged by right now, it's okay him doing that against West Ham in the League Cup, but like. Is he going to be brave enough to step in against the Liverpool press and try and do things like that? I mean, will Ancelotti play the percentages and say, we're probably going to hurt them more on the break. Let's be tight. Let's be compact. He he will always do those things. But they've got this game changer, this pass maker, this game breaker in James Rodriguez that can can open things up and, and, and create combinations. And it's, it's just fascinating to me. And I, I hope it'll be a good game. In my mind, I'm like, when's the last time Everton have been this strong? Probably Roberto Martinez's second, first season, wasn't it? Um, the first season under Roberto Martinez. And even then, Liverpool still, if I remember correctly, blew them away. Um, and, you know, Merseyside is, is undergoing huge lockdown restrictions. Now, their restrictions have been raised because of the coronavirus outbreaks in the city. And so... This is such a weird time for the city, and it's such a shame that probably one of the more exciting derbies since the early 90s, one of the more intriguing derbies, will have no one in the ground, no one at Goodison, and everybody locked in their homes. It just, it's really, really disappointing because, you know, Everton are are good and are good to watch, and Liverpool are the champions, and they're meeting in a derby that's been tasty. This is a tasty derby for the first time in, in, I think, a long time. And it's dangerous to do this because anybody can beat anybody. But let's say Everton do win this game. They're gonna they'll kind of be on their way. Because after this, they've got Southampton, Newcastle, Manchester United, Fulham, Leeds, and Burnley. Now I'm not saying there aren't tricky fixtures in there. You know, Manchester United, even when they're down, are still are still tricky the way Leeds are playing. But like Everton will be expected to win, not tie, win every single one of those games. So like if they win this, we could be into early December and Everton may still not have a loss. Now I'm getting I'm getting way ahead of myself, but it's I'm, if you're an Everton fan out there, I think you're you're allowed to dream right now. You can look at that and you can start to think that way. Andrew, right now all we've got is our dreams. <laughs> That's a great point, um, JJ. I hate doing this because I don't have everything at my disposal here, but I do have a Merseyside Derby trivia challenge for. Oh no! And you can all oh, you in your head now. All right, here we go. Who's the all-time leading goal scorer across all competitions in the Merseyside Derby? Ian Rush. 
Very good with 20 goals. Ian Rush. Excellent, JJ. All right. A little recent history. The 2018-19 season. First meeting between the two ended in spectacular fashion. One of the more memorable derbies between them uh, when this Liverpool player scuffed a shot that wound up getting misplayed by Jordan Pickford only to bounce off the bar and fall to the feet of this Liverpool player who slotted home for the winner in the sixth minute of stoppage time. Um, Sir Virgil of Van Dyke and Divock Origi. Very good, JJ. You're two for two. All right, here we go. We're going to ramp it up a little bit now. This player has appeared in more Merseyside derbies than any other player. More Merseyside derbies than any other player. It, he's retired now at this point. Yes. Neville Southall. Very good. Three for three. Ugh. 41 appearances. All right, last one, JJ. This here is probably go. the toughest one. Only two players have scored for both sides in the Merseyside Derby. Can you name them? Oh. Oh. Two players. Um, okay. okay. Gary Ablett. No. Okay, not Gary Ablett. Um, Abel Javier. No. Oh. oh, this is one I should get. What am I doing? What am I doing? Go on. David Johnson scored for Everton against Liverpool in 1971 and then scored a couple goals with, uh, while he was with Liverpool against Everton. And then Peter Beardsley, six dark oh, goals for Liverpool against oh. Everton and then one for Everton against Liverpool in 1992. Ah, uh, I've let everyone down. And there you have it. Merseyside Derby trivia. That'll get you ready for the game. You excited now? You feel like you're mentally prepared? I enjoyed that, but I've uh, I've disgraced the legacy of uh, Peter Beardsley. And your family, quite frankly. I'll tell you what, let's take a very quick break. That was Wheel of Football, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it with this awful wheel that I'm just going to take a bat to when we're done with this. When we come back from this break on the other side, a little MLS chat. Got to catch up with Jeff Carlisle. It's been, it's been too long. I look forward to talking all kinds of MLS issues with Jeff, including a very interesting name appearing on the DC United possible coaching list. Uh, I think you'll all be very curious about that as well. Don't go anywhere. More Caught Offside next. Oh, back now on Caught Offside. Lots happening MLS, uh, which we really want to get to, and we want to get to it with one of our favorite people to have on this show. Back with us now from ESPN FC, Jeff Carlisle. Jeff, what's up, man? How are you? Andrew and JJ, how are you guys? We're doing well, hanging in. Um, there's a lot of stuff that I wanted to get to. I'm glad you're on. The first one being the situation, I guess, with the Colorado Rapids. That seems to be what is most pressing right now. Uh, they've had more matches postponed due to, uh, I guess, a, for lack of a better term, a coronavirus outbreak within the club. What, where do we stand right now with them, with the status of this outbreak, when they may resume playing again? Where are things at with that club? I mean, they're in a bad spot. Um just on all manner of fronts. I mean, you know, the, the big one, obviously, is the, the human angle to it. I mean, there's five players, 13 staff. It's just been a drip, drip, drip of, of positive cases. And just, you know, periodically talking to people in Colorado, they're like, well, you know, we haven't had any positive cases in the last few days. We think we're, you know, we're past this. And then they, they get another positive test. And so, you know, the latest impact to all this, I mean, there were four games postponed before. Two of those have been rescheduled, but now last night it emerged that three more games, um, I think through the 21st of October, have also been postponed. And so now there's a real question as to whether 
they're going to be able to get these games in. And I mean, there is kind of a precedent for, for dealing with postponements and cancellations. Um, you know, back when, uh, when nine 11 happened, you know, the league still had, I think two weeks to go in the regular season and they just basically called those games off and, and used points per game to decide, you know, who, uh, who would, who got placed where in the standings and seating for the playoffs. And um, it had an impact on the supporter shield too, because in that year, I think Miami and Chicago had the same number of points and Miami got it based on head to head. Now, whether that was the rule before they decided to cancel those games or not, I mean, who knows, but there, I mean, there was still trophies at stake. I mean, now I'll grant you that the supporter shield wasn't as big a deal back then as it is now, but um, you know, I guess it's a long-winded way of saying there, there is a precedent for this. And so, and just in talking to the league in the past 24 hours, they are prepared. And, and Don Garber is on record as saying, we're going to, we're going to go points per game route if it comes to that. And so I think what you've got is, is a real mess. And, and then on top of all that, you've got a couple of positive cases in Minnesota, uh, two staff positive cases in Columbus, another positive player in Orlando. And so these cases are starting, you know, starting to, to accumulate. And so, you know, I think it calls into question again, the wisdom of how much farther into the season do you go? Um, And at at what point, you know, does the league just kind of cut bait? I mean, now the league is saying they can't envision any scenario where the the season doesn't get completed somehow, some way in some form. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, I mean, it's sobering to say the least. I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're not only talking about people's health, but professional athletes for whom health is just a huge, huge aspect to their lives and, and staying uh, yeah. being able to get on the field. So it's, you know, the, the league is continuing to push along, but it's, it, it makes me kind of look at it like, man, is this, is this all really worth it? I don't know if it's if it's premature to suggest this, but you know the bubble for the MLS's back tournament seemed to work. Is there any consideration being given to going back to that for a postseason? I don't think so. Um, you know, I think you know the bubble. Everyone remembers how well it worked. There were no positive cases inside the bubble. Now, some positive cases were brought into the bubble, and then you know, obviously Dallas and Nashville had to leave. But I think. It come, there's there's a human cost to that as well because guys are going to be away from their families, you know, especially at least for the teams that that make it deep, you know, all the way to, to MLS Cup final. Um, but from what I, the best I can tell is that that's not something that's being considered. And not only that, but the league is is standing, you know, is holding fast to its December twelfth MLS Cup final. So there's no there's no wiggle room in terms of pushing the, the season back a week or two. I mean, obviously, if you push push MLS Cup back a week, you're getting awfully close to the Christmas holiday. It's just a, a difficult situation all around. And But but it does make you kind of question the wisdom about, you know, how, how many more positive cases can, can the league handle before they just decide this isn't worth it? You said it was... These, these outbreaks that are happening are sobering. The whole situation is, is pretty sobering. So allow me to talk about, about football, Jeff, which yeah. Um, yeah. Are, is LAFC fixed now after that win over uh, the Seattle Sounders? Are, are things 
Are things have things been righted? Can we now look at them and say they're in the hunt for the big one? Is or is this ultimately just a, a solid result and, and the problems that they experienced right up until a couple of weeks ago still remain? Yeah, I mean, I found myself saying that a few times this season because they they've they've gotten some big results. I remember they had a, a pretty lopsided win over San Jose. Now, grant you, that was during a period when a lot of teams were getting lopsided wins over San Jose, but um, I digress. You know, I, so I, I found myself saying, okay, you know, LAFC, they're, they're back to where they need to be. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're back on track. And then, then they, they kind of just, they, they become, un, you know, they fall off the rails again. So uh, I'm, I'm going to hesitate and, and they're going to have to show me over the next few games that, okay, you know, if, if we look at like a two to three game trend, okay. And people say, well, okay, they've won three or four, you know, I, I still need to see more consistency out of them, especially on, on the defensive end. Um, you know, they, obviously the result against Seattle was fantastic. Um, you know, Masovsky steps up and, and gives them just a great performance in front of goal. I think Jordan Harvey came up with just some amazing defensive plays, critical defensive plays. But but now, you know, the injury bug is starting to hit them again, too. I mean, I haven't seen the latest reports about Mark Anthony Kay, but that did not look good at all. And it's almost like a an annual occurrence for this this guy. And, you know, it's I don't think it's that. He, I mean, and these are serious injuries. It's not like he's pulling a muscle or a hamstring or whatever. Um, you know, these are serious injuries that he's just picking up at, at just, you know, the tail end of the regular season. And then, um, you know, Andy Nahar goes off. So it's, you know, credit to LAFC for getting that result under some pretty difficult circumstances. But again, you know, they're, they're going to have to show me over these next few weeks that, okay, yeah, this is the LAFC that we've become accustomed to. Jeff, I, I saw, I mean, this really caught my eye. Ben Olsen obviously out with D.C. United, which in itself is a big story for the amount of time he had spent as the, the head coach at that club. But then I saw the list of possible candidates, and I saw Jill Ellis's name on that list. Just how how real is this? Could she be the new manager at D.C. United? I, I think it's still early. Um, you know, what I was told is that she is on D.C. United's list of candidates. Now, that could mean <laughs> that could mean a lot of things. I mean – and I was cautioned that, you know, that's still very early in the process. So do I think that it's real for the moment? Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, they they would be foolish not to to talk to Jill Ellis, I mean, given her resume. Um, mm. You know, the one knock, I mean, I guess you could say against Jill Ellis is that she's been a national team coach the vast majority of her career. I mean, she, she did coach collegiately at Illinois and UCLA. Um but she hasn't coached club football. But then I can think of an awful lot of male candidates who hadn't coached club football either. I mean, you know, Ben Olson had had been an assistant for six months when he got the job, you know, 10, 10 or so years ago. So, um, so it's, Jeff, we'll sorry. See, we'll see what happens. We'll see how it goes as, as, this, as the, you know, the, the process moves along. Sorry to cut across you, Jeff, but I, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in this whole thing because the when I saw Jill Ellis's name on the list, I thought, Okay, that's interesting, um, but but more than anything, I th- I thought of the way the last World Cup played out and the general perception amongst fans and amongst writers as well that maybe this was someone who was in charge of a of an excellent group of players, but was not a heralded coach. Uh, is is that am I being unfair? 
would the main problem with her ascending to the role in MLS would be that she's not that highly regarded? Well, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, there's no denying that the U.S. team is talented. It's it's probably the most talented, deepest team in the world. I mean, I can remember watching the 2019 World Cup and saying, unless the U.S. just has an absolutely awful day, they they are going to win this tournament. And so, so yes, it's fair to say that the Jill Ellis had just a, uh, an incredible cast of players from which to work with. Um, but that said, um, I can remember in 2015, the talk was, what's wrong with the U.S.? They haven't won this tournament in 16 years. Now, okay, granted, they won some Olympics in, in between, but, you know, it's like, why can't they win a World Cup? You know, what, what's happened? So, yes, Jill Ellis had some talented players at her disposal, but she also won. I mean, she won these tournaments, and she succeeded where, where others failed. I mean, right. even Pia Sundhaga, I mean, she didn't win it with the U.S. So, I mean, granted, you know, penalties, and, you know, you can talk about that, you know, until the cows come home, but... um. But Jill Ellis got it done, and so I, I think she deserves some credit for that. Now, some yes, some players, you know, Ali Krieger, Sydney Larue have come out and talked about how they didn't like Jill and and this and that. But I mean, you're going to get that. Any coach is going to get that. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I've talked to some coaches who took the, uh, the, the 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 new licensing course that the USF the USSF put on, and they were came away very impressed with Jill. So I think there's, there's every reason to talk to her. I'm sure whoever, you know, if DC United or whoever it is does their due diligence, they're going to talk to former players and, and try to get a cross-section of, of feedback. Um, but, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, you know, certainly DC United is at, a, is at a low ebb at the moment, and they, they, spent, they, they spent some considerable money in the offseason, and, and it didn't pan out. So, uh, you know, they, they've got to get this higher right. Um, but again, that's, that's, that's true for, for any club in the, when, <laughs> that finds itself in the situation that DC United is in. Jeff, last one from me. Uh, the top of the Eastern Conference is fascinating to me. Toronto, Philly, uh, Columbus. Uh, I'll kind of cap it at those three. Apologies to Orlando fans. Um, which one right now would you give an edge to? I feel like every time I want to say it's Philadelphia, Toronto goes out and, and looks great and, and vice versa. Um, in the beginning of the season, JJ, I, I had been preaching Columbus, and I feel like now they've fallen back. Do you get a sense right now of who is kind of at the head of this race? Well, I think right now it's Toronto. Um, they are the hot team. They, they seem to be coming together at the right time. Um, you know, Josie Altador's injury, um, that certainly takes a little bit of a shine off of it. But, um, I mean, Pozuelo for me is the MVP. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's that close. I mean, he just keeps delivering week after week and, you know, and then Pablo Piatti, I think is, you know, a a great sidekick, if you will. I mean, for lack of a better term, I mean, you know, I can remember, you know, during the days of Sebastian Giovinco, you know, they had, um, I want to say Victor Vasquez, you know, he was a great, player a, a great second option and so i think with piotti you know that that's been the the big boost for you know for toronto is that they've got the second option who, who can create and, and create some havoc and it, it's not always pozuelo but i mean pozuelo for me has been fantastic i think richie larea has been just di- really dynamic coming out of the back i mean i think if there is a question mark it's it's you know the the 
defensively on the back line, but I mean, they've been, they've been tough. So it's, you know, that, I'm kind of nitpicking there. I mean, in, in terms of Columbus, I mean, the injury bug has really bitten them in a bad way. I mean, to lose Darlington Nagby for as long as they have, you know, Zeller Ion is injured. Um, I think Aloy Room will be back soon. I, I don't think that's a long-term thing. But, um, I mean, Darlington Nagby was the one guy Columbus couldn't afford to miss. And so now you're starting to see that reflected in the results. I mean, they, you know, it, it's, I think it's a testament to Columbus that they, they they got results for a while after Nagby got hurt, but you know they they lose to Toronto and then losing to, at home to Montreal. I mean that that's not a good result at all. So um, can they make it back? Of course. I mean there's still there's still a few weeks for them to heal up. Um, Philadelphia, I mean they just keep chugging along, and obviously Brendan Aronson has been fantastic. Um, they've got. They're, but they are a team that I think is, is you know, to use the cliche, is greater than the sum of its parts. But you wonder if they've got a guy like, you know, I don't see them you know, with a guy like Pazuelo who can just really just raise the level of a team uh, in, in the playoffs. But again, these are one-off games, so, you know, anything can happen. Well, so it'll be fascinating to see who emerges from the Eastern Conference because I agree it's, it's a pretty stacked conference, uh, you know, especially, you know, those top four teams. And I, I wouldn't rule out Orlando. I mean, we'll – We'll see how they do. Jeff, quick yes or no. Eric Hurtado's volley for Sporting Kansas City was the greatest goal ever scored in MLS. <laughs> I'm going to say uh, no, um, because I'm, I'm, I'm partial to the early 2000 era San Jose earthquakes, and this even stretches into the middle. And that goal that Dwayne Rosario scored – against the LA Galaxy on a free kick. That is the most hellacious free kick I have ever seen. And um, yeah, I, I, for me, that that's still, that, that's still uh, tops. But um, that was a fantastic goal. And, and um, you know, Hurtado was a guy who was, who was just kind of plugged away. I mean, he, he, he's, you know, I, you know, he started out in Vancouver, I think. And, you know, now he's in Kansas City. And, you know, he, he never seems to be able to get a steady run of games. Um, I, mean, I may be forgetting some of his time in Vancouver, but, you know, obviously Alan Polito is, is you know, if healthy is, and, and available is going to be the striker that Peter Vermes uses. But, you know, full credit to Hurtado. That was a fantastic goal. We've got everybody running to YouTube now to check up early 2000s San Jose earthquakes. Jeff. I think this is in 2005, so it was mid-2000s. But that was, I think, because they moved to Houston, I think that, a team isn't, or that group of players is not often looked at as, as a dynasty, but, you know, they won MLS Cups in 2001, 2003, 2006, 2007. They won Supporter Shield in there in 2005. So, I mean, I think when you think dynasty, you think the Galaxy and, you know, you think the early DC United teams, you know, when the league was first starting. But I, I think that group of players that kind of span the San Jose-Houston move, I think sometimes doesn't get their due. Fair enough. Good stuff, man. We'll uh, hope that the season reaches completion. And if so, I'm sure we'll check back in with you again. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Our thanks to Jeff. I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll catch up with him again soon. I love Jeff. Glad he's doing well. Um, Yeah. See, uh, we have a mailbag. Anything that you wanted to throw out there before we get to that? Yeah. I should probably clarify my comments on, on, on Jill Ellis. Um, I feel like I've, I've guardiola her. I've suggested that the team, was so good that anyone could have managed them. Um, but I do remember 
I don't remember many players when she finished up as manager coming out and showering her with praise. Did you? No, not really. Do you, remem- that, do you Jeff remember? Jeff is right, though, when he said you like players. Not it's just never going to be unanimous in a mm. locker room of, of players, you know, loving their coach. And there are large personalities in that U.S. women's, women's national. Oh, locker that's room. for sure. But she took them to two World Cup final, a uh, World Cup championship wins back to back, and that, nothing. I mean, I remember, JJ, we were going through the last tournament and we'd be sitting here doing uh, podcasts after games that the U.S. were winning and like hearing from people on Twitter who were mad about the lineup and mad about the way they're playing. And I remember saying like, you guys are going to be screaming at her all the way through her hoisting the trophy at the end of this tournament. Don't you get that? Like at some point, is anybody going to concede that she's she's doing a good job? People, for whatever reason... Are, are have been slow to warm up to her. Just- I, I read so much Kim, Kim McCauley during that World Cup. And honestly, Andrew, Kim was not exactly enamored with Jill Ellis either as, as coach. So maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but that will be interesting to see if she where that candidacy goes in terms of the DC United job. If she does become one of the final, you know, two, three candidates that I'll be curious how that plays out. That's, that's a potentially, that's like a big moment, not just for DC United hiring a new coach. There's like a much larger conversation here of, of the importance of, of something like that occurring. That could be like a landmark moment in, in sports history. For sure. Let's see you a quick mailbag here. Very quick mailbag. Um, a great many of you have contacted contacted us to um, to talk about Ted Lasso, but we're moving that. We're going to divert that to uh, about a few the- minutes a few minutes from now. Yeah, um, Cosmos on Instagram contacted us. That's caught offside. ESPN on Instagram. What do you guys think of the comments Weston McKinney made regarding playing for the USA and race? So Weston McKinney was uh, doing some work for Adidas, or as you guys say, Adidas. And um, he had some things to say. Um, The things that stood out for me was, uh, this is Weston McKinney, quote, I went back home to Dallas and I'm afraid to drive at night just because I don't know what's going to happen if I get pulled over. I'm representing a country that possibly doesn't even accept me just for the color of my skin. It's definitely a bit heartbreaking. When I wore the armband, which is the George Floyd armband that he wore during the Bundesliga restart, I felt it was a duty and a responsibility, one being American and two being a black American. I just felt a need to bring awareness overseas. I got a lot of support from it. I also got hate from it. Um, I think those comments are kind of self-explanatory, right? Yeah, and it is something that we talked about. Remember, after um, this all kind of like came to a head following the uh, the George Floyd protests, um, I remember we spoke to Kobe Jones on this show and people can go back and listen to that interview because it was the way he opened up was, was really illuminating. And we asked him directly if he would feel uncomfortable putting on that USA uniform. um, If he maybe was not in a, in a good place mentally with where the country was at in terms of, you know, how people looked at him. Uh, And he answered instantaneously. He said, no, I would not have a problem putting on this Jersey. Um, So I think it's, I'm not going to tell anyone on this that they're right or wrong. If Weston McKinney feels uncomfortable, um, I I completely understand, and, and, and I, I would no, and I would not fault him for feeling that way. But I would also, if Kobe Jones feels differently about it, like that's it's for up for each individual to make their own decision. On. And I think it's wor- it's worth noting that you can't look at 
African-American thought on this as a monolith. It's not just one thought. This is not what everyone thinks. And, um, but, but more importantly is that when a, when a, when a black person or an African-American person or person of color says to us, this is the way I feel. It's important not to invalidate what they say. It's important to listen to what they have to say and the reasons why. And I think if you, if you read the entirety of what uh, Weston said during that Adidas, um, that Adidas piece, it's, it's interesting. And he, he kind of explains himself and I understand why he feels that way. So if we can, JJ, I, wa- I kind of want to roll with that right into my red card. Okay. Red card. So, uh, Along these lines, I'm giving mine to FC Dallas. Now, before I go any further, I want to couch all of this by saying, um, before I go through this, up to this point, we have only heard one side of this story. Um, and I, I'll say this now, and then you'll know what I'm referring to. But uh, FC Dallas have been, reach, uh, been reached out to by ESPN FC for comment. And up to this point, I have not seen if anything's changed by the time you're listening to this. But up to this point, they have not given any comment or statement on this. So... Knowing that, I'll just continue, and people can be left to make their own decisions. But Reggie Cannon, who recently transferred from FC Dallas to a, a Portuguese side, Boa Vista, appeared on the Crack podcast, which is hosted by Aguchi Onyewu and Demarcus Beasley. You'll remember, of course, back on August 12th, players for FC Dallas and Nashville SC took a knee as a show of solidarity with racial equality and anti-police brutality. You'll also remember that fans in the stands that night booed the players and some allegedly hurled objects at them. Uh, In the immediate aftermath, Cannon was very outspoken in his criticism of the fans' behavior. On the podcast, Cannon revealed that the club had originally asked him to apologize for his comments. Uh, Cannon was quoted as saying, they had written out a statement, Cannon said. I kid you not. I'm reading here now, JJ, from Doug McIntyre in his article. uh, He wrote uh, about this interview. Cannon described in detail death threats he said he and his family have received for criticizing the fans' actions. I said, with all respect, I'm not apologizing. I didn't do anything wrong, Cannon said. Everyone at the club said, we have your back 100%, Cannon said. And when it actually gets sticky and you actually have to go through it, I mean, I'm looking around and I'm almost alone in this. Everyone at the club said, we have your back 100%, uh, but they were not with him when he felt he needed the most. Um so like I said, we have not heard from FC Dallas here. They've declined comments so far. I, I think the story is particularly disappointing to me, JJ, because I actually thought that Cannon's comments about the fans' behavior were was actually like somewhat, I wouldn't say tepid. He referred to their, their behavior, the behavior as disgusting. He didn't say these were disgusting people in the stands. He said that he felt their behavior was disgusting. Um, I mean, considering some of the things that maybe he could have said and the things that were probably being said to him, I thought that was fairly tame, and I certainly didn't think that it necessitated an apology if that no. is, in fact, what FC Dallas was asking him to do. Um, I mean, you know, it was on, now it was only after he received death threats that the club then did make a public statement um, of support for Cannon and for their players. But, that, but, but it took that uh, for them to get to that level. So if that is, in fact, how this played out, it just – it just kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable with FC Dallas putting Reggie Cannon in that position during during that time. Um, I think that's we talk about optics, we talk about things being a bad look. I think I think that's a bad look, uh, and I would and for me personally, I would say it was not it was not the right course of action for them to take. No, it certainly wasn't. Um, 
we saw who the aggressors were in this situation, and it certainly wasn't Reggie Cannon. Well, that's the thing I was thinking about. Is like, can you think of any other time in sports, um, and, and remove from that any physical confrontations between players and fans, like you know the malice at the palace and incidents like that? You know, this was non-physical. This was simply a, a, a silent, peaceful protest that didn't last very long, and uh, then the game went on. But like, can you think of any any non-violent, non-physical confrontation that involved fans throwing objects at a player that ended with the team asking the players to apologize? Like that is like even re- removing like the the what it was they were protesting and the reasoning behind it. Even removing that, just like if that was the scene, asking the players to apologize in in that situation. Now, FC Dallas wasn't asking Reggie Cannon to apologize because of the protest. They were asking him to apologize for his comments. But like I said, his comments were were fairly benign to me. Um, you can imagine you know. some of the things that were that were probably said to him and yeah. shouted at him. So yeah, I'm not. So, I'm not sure he, an apology needs to come from Reggie Cannon. No. What do you got? Um, this is from Christopher Harris of World Soccer Talk. Um, soccer fans wanting to watch the World Cup qualifiers beginning in October featuring national teams from South America's Comnebol will need to pay more than ever before to watch the games. In a deal struck earlier this year with Integrated Sports Media, the media rights holder in the United States has made the games available in both English and Spanish, as well as Portuguese for the games involving Brazil via online streaming sites, Fanatis and FITE, as well as through traditional pay-per-view methods such as DirecTV, Dish Network, and In Demand. The broadcasts of these games are exclusive to the above-mentioned platforms. The only exception is the match between Venezuela and Paraguay, which will be live on BN Sports Extra. To watch any of the World Cup qualifiers from the Comnebol region, the suggested pay-per-view retail price is $29.95 per game. And there's a pack for the low, low price, I believe, of $50 one of our listeners informed us on Twitter, where you can watch two games. Andrew, is this what it's going, is this what it's come to now from now on? I mean, that is outrageous to me. Absolutely outrageous. Well, especially, especially if we're in a, in a place where like, what is, what is the status right now of fans being allowed in stadiums for these games? I would, I would like, imagine these, it, we're, we're talking about prices that almost cost the price of a ticket to watch a game on television. So, I, 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 I can't understand it. It's it's well, you you can understand get, it. You just it, you, it just doesn't feel right, and you don't it, like but it. But it, it's again that thing we were talking about earlier about taking advantage. You know, it's it's about. Uh, look at the situation they're in. Fans are desperate to watch their teams. We know how many expatriate Brazilians and South Americans we've got in America. Let's let's go get them. They, well, the thing you the know thing how you have, passionate you know how passionate South American soccer fans are. They will pay this. So I'm sure now I have I know nothing about this and I haven't read a single word about it. You telling me this right now is is the first time I'm hearing this. So I have to imagine fans are not in stadiums. They're trying to do this as a way of making up for the lost revenue of of that happening. So here's what I'm curious about. I once heard a story, JJ, the Verrazano Bridge between Brooklyn and Staten Island. Um, it was I'm built. Familiar. Yeah, it was built, and then a toll was put on it. And the original plan supposedly was for that toll to exist until the bridge had been paid for. Uh, they gotten their money back from what it cost to build the bridge, and then the toll would go away. And that toll has never gone away. And now what is it to cross? It's like fourteen dollars to go from like Brooklyn to Staten Island. Like it's ridiculous. So here's what I wonder: Will they put the milk back in the udder? 
if this is something, if, if they're instituting this because they want to make up for the lost revenue of not being able to have gate revenue of fans going to games, like I don't like it, but okay, these are crazy times. Crazy things are happening for companies to try to make money, whatever. Um, but will this, will it then continue? Like, will they be like, you know what? That was a really great way of us to make a lot of extra money. Let's keep doing that and and uh, treating fans as suckers. And like, that's that's the thing that I wonder about is once we're past all this, what sort of, you know, w- what will be left behind and what will continue? Boy, I hope stuff like that is not the new norm. Uh, Andrew, this is what they want. This is what big money and big TV want. Yeah. Uh, all right. My man of the match, JJ. And I know you said this was going to be part of the mailbag. So if you have those questions ready, get them ready here. But JJ, I'm going to give my man of the match to someone that I honestly, truly did not expect giving it to. And that is Ted Lasso. Because yes, JJ, I opened up my heart and I let Lasso in. Mm-hmm. And I encourage you to do the same. Here's what I will say about it. Uh. Now I'm kind of being like semi-jokey, but here's what I will honestly say about it. So like I said, from the start, I had no intention of watching the show. I thought it looked kind of like cheesy and sort of formulaic. Um, but it reached a point where we had heard so many positive reviews from listeners and from other members of like the soccer media. All um, saying the same thing. All all singing its praises. So it reached a point where I was like, well, I had Apple TV Plus. What is stopping me from watching this? Let me at least try. And I did. And in the end, JJ, I'm glad that I watched it. And I would say this to you. I basically view it in the same kind of light that I view a show like Entourage. Like I'm not sitting down to watch Entourage expecting this to win Emmys. Okay. It is what it is. It's a fun show. And like I said, the, the preconceived notions that I had about it, formulaic, kind of cheesy, like those things I, I think are still true, but I think a show can still work. Sometimes shows are formulaic because those formulas work. And, and you know, this show kind of fits the bill for me with that. So like, ultimately I'd say, look, like, it's it's goofy. It plays on all kinds of cliches, both American cliches, British cliches, oh, and sports cliches. Does it, it, play, ever. it plays on all of them. There's no getting around that. But ultimately, for me, when an episode ended, I enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed the last 30 minutes of what I just okay. watched, and I was eager to watch the next one. And I made it through. I finished the show last night. Amanda loved it, um, my wife. And so it was, like I said, it's like Entourage for the Premier League. It's kind of like it's very light. And I just found it to be a fun watch. So take that for whatever it's worth. Um, Like I said, not every show has to be Ozark or Breaking Bad. You know, Mm. there is a, there is a place I think for light comedy. And this is definitely that. And I would say that Jason Sudeikis in this is good enough. And his character is lovable enough that you do develop some kind of like connection to that character and you do root Mm. for him. And uh, so I'm, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I did. Look, I think I think I'm uh, three episodes in now at this point, and I, I just I think my big issue was, and this may be being Irish, and maybe British people. If there's any British uh, listeners out there, I know we've got some. Uh, maybe if they watch it, they'll feel the same. You know, it's that feeling of I can see the joke coming. I know what's happening here, and that I've heard, that definitely. I've heard the jokes a million times. Being an expat in America, the the, the whole thing about uh, I, uh, what, what do you mean boots cleats oh boot of the car boot 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 um, how many jokes can you make in one freaking episode about tea like mm-hmm. 
unbelievable. Like I said, it plays on cliches. There's yeah, no getting around. It doesn't play on them. It it doesn't play with them. It it devours them and then regurgitates them again. All right, relax, Roger Ebert. It is uh, what it is. Uh, like, and I just didn't laugh, and that's the big thing. So I think if I was laughing, I could accept the next part that I I, I just had a huge problem with the unearned schmaltz. Like there's schmaltz from the absolute get go in this thing, and you can see it coming, and it's it's just it hasn't earned. I, I believe like a, a crucial part of American comedy is the moment like that moment where the moment of realization where all the jokes have stopped now and we're we're in a real world situation and and it's just totally unearned um then the next i i i think the other thing i had a problem with in it as well although I, I, let me say what i found it hold on you've watched how many episodes three of ten okay oh my god i mean i've i, I mean it's <laughs> I, I don't really think I need to see much more. I will watch it through because because I am that kind of guy. You know, um, I, I, someone said to me that the characters are well-developed. <laughs> They're not well-developed. They're complete and utter uh, cliche characters. Uh, you know, we've got the austere, sneaky Brits. And I think if I'm going to talk about what's interesting about it is the portrayal of an American in this scenario. Um the American coach in Lasso is is almost rethought to be. He's this warm, friendly, but crucially kind character, which is not the perception right now, or maybe maybe ever, that people have had of an American coach or even an American who's given any kind of power. Kindness is not one of those things. So I, I thought it was interesting that they're they're pushing this idea right now. Right. It's it's the one part of Love Actually that always made me very uncomfortable. The way Billy Bob Thornton portrays the president. <laughs> but yeah um uh but you know i i don't think this is made for me though i think this is made for people no it's certainly not i'm actually annoyed that you even have bothered to watch it because you're going to ruin this for everyone no 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 no. people I'm that not... want to just sit down and kind of be happy like and I, you I, you won't accept that i, I know i i do i do have an issue if something is telegraphed and i can see it coming like i'm not going to give away anything but the moment with the paparazzi where he's feeding his star player's girlfriend a burger into her mouth while she's dressed as a lion. I'm like, there's a long lens telescope about to come around the corner. I mean, this is this is so obvious. Um, the, 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 something I, I think the interplay between the owner and and Ted Lasso is is so reminiscent of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Those of you who are history buffs from the 1980s, this kind of cowboyish buffoonish but warm character that reagan was presented as who wins over the austere business-like and quite cold margaret thatcher there's that dynamic going on um but look i i, I get why pe- people who people the people who enjoy this andrew are the people who call rebecca low lady low who um, what there are there are Americans who call her Lady Low. Oh, for God's sake! All right. Yes. At any rate, this, this was and, my man and, of the and match. The people everyone. who I'm thought that JJ has the, a heart of coal and had people to who it thought it was me and all of you. The people who thought it was hilarious when Kyle Martino dressed up as Rebecca Low and affected a British accent. This is for you, okay? And by the way, this nation is taking over the Champions League. This nation is taking over the world of soccer, either by taking over the Premier League or with our brilliant players. So this is this this show is already dated. When okay? when did you change? What was the moment you say that you can look back on where you you kind of diverted from this happy go lucky guy to this angry cynic? 
I'm not. I just on. want to talk about things intelligently. Where where you are, you just want no, to. I, I have all the no time. business. I, I have no interest talking about things intelligently. None. <laughs> Listen, if you enjoy it, you enjoy it. Take any joy you can out of anything right now. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna jump all over it. <laughs> After jumping all over it. What do you have, JJ? Uh, Man of the match. Andrew, what is the point of power if we can't give things to our friends or rather to ourselves? Paul Scholes has been installed as interim head coach of Salford City after the sacking of Graham Alexander. Scholes, who co-owns the club with his former Manchester United teammates, Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Ryan Giggs and Nicky Butt, will not be a permanent appointment with a new head coach to be hired by the end of the month. Scholes will lead training at the League Two club following the 2-2 draw with Tranmere, leaving them in fifth and still unbeaten after five games, which seems like a an odd time to sack your manager. Uh, Scholes resigned after a month as Oldham manager, citing interference from the owner. So that's unlikely to happen again. Um, good luck what to a you. Line, what, what a line from you. What do you start by saying there? What's the point of power if you can't give things to yourself? God, it's like you were came like right out of the, the, the project big picture board meeting. <laughs> no, isn't, isn't the phrase, isn't the phrase, uh, the great quote. Let me look it up. What is the point of power if you can't do things for your friends? I think, oh, okay. I think that's the quote. I'm not going to bother looking that up, but the point being is Scolzi has appointed himself. That's... That that seems to fly in the face of something that you would typically uh, appreciate. Yeah, it isn't. I just uh, I just wanted oh. to read it. It's not even a matter of the match. I just needed something for that segment. <laughs> I'm glad that this came back and JJ has. It took all of one episode for this to return and to for JJ to cease taking it seriously to crap on my man of the match and all of your hearts. Um, we got to get out. This podcast is way too long. Well, hey, this was fun. Um, I enjoy speaking with Jeff Carlisle. I appreciate him coming on the show, talking MLS with us. Uh, I'm going to have a new, better wheel, I think, for the next time we do a wheel of football because this Please. one was sad. It's and, uh, yeah, and it's left like soot marks in my in my room here. It's it's pretty it's pretty bad. Hey, this was fun, man. To you, I say, check you later, fun boy. See ya. See ya, man. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. <laughs>